Father, we thank you so much for this time to study your word. I pray that you give us uh, just energy in our minds to think through some of these things and uh, help us to be so uh, mindful of, of what you have given us in your word, particularly with the respect to the second commandment. So bless our time uh, in, in this hour. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I want you to buckle your seatbelts for a moment, and I want you to brace yourself as I read from Psalm chapter 50, okay? This is not for the faint of heart. Uh, a Psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and, and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. We just finished discussing the first commandment out of ten. You shall have no other gods before me. And we have basically discussed this idea that God is transcendent. He's different. He's, he's highest. He is the best. Uh, he, he's different, and there's nothing that compares to the distinctiveness of the Almighty God. And so what I just read for you, Psalm 50, is really a commentary on the first commandment. Uh, it, it tells you who God is. It tells you that he's the mighty one. He's God, the Lord. He is God, your God. But it doesn't just tell you who he is. It tells you also what he does. He summons the earth uh, from the rising of the sun to its setting. He, he comes from Zion, the perfection of beauty. He comes with fire before him and a mighty tempest around him. Uh, the pictures of a chariot rider where his horses are a firestorm and his chariot is like a, um, like a Category 5 hurricane that goes like a, at 155 miles per hour. That's like the picture. That's the God we've been talking about. There is no other gods before him because he's different. There's nothing, there's no one like him. And so Psalm 50 is a wonderful summary, uh, an expansion on the first commandment. God is almighty. God is greatest. But now we want to turn our attention to the second commandment. Do not make an idol. The second commandment is different from the first, but I think that you'll find that it's not that different. It's not that different. The first and second commandments uh, come as a pair, and they're kind of like partners in crime in a sense. Uh, they belong together, 
Uh, they go together. Uh, you can think of them maybe like the detective pair, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, right? You know, what would, what would, how would Sherlock survive without Dr. Watson? And how would, you know, Dr., what would Dr. Watson do without his impulsive friend, Sherlock? They go together, right? Or perhaps you could think of him like the TV characters Sean and Gus from the uh, TV show Psych, right? <laughs> what would Sean do without Gus? And where would Gus be without Sean? I mean, that's just kind of the, they go together, right? Maybe the cartoon, Finne, uh, the cartoon characters Phineas and Ferb, like I, I prefer, you know? Where would Phineas be without Ferb? And how would Ferb ever say anything without Phineas? So that's, they go together, right? Well, the first and second commandments are an inseparable pair because they address the same theological principle about God. And it just, the only difference is they're coming at it from a different vantage point. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, forbids God's people from elevating anything to the level of absolute superiority. Uh, basically, to the level of, of God is the creator of the universe. So, in other words, if God is, represents the highest position on kind of our totem pole, our spectrum here, the idea is you, you, you don't want to bring anything to that level. God is superior. He alone uh, owns that, that top spot, okay? That's the idea. Well, the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol, forbids God's people from lowering God to a level of mediocrity, uh, to the level of his ordinary creation. In other words, the second commandment says, don't take God and bring him down, okay? So that's the idea. Uh, that's the main idea of the second commandment. It's a pair with the second commandment because it all has to do with how are you looking at God? How do you view God? The biggest crime of the second commandment is not that the act of carving an idol is like really a bad thing. Like if you make an action figure, you know, then you're in trouble, you know, like it's not that. But the problem with the second commandment is this. How, how is it that you dare to demote God from his superior position and bring him down to your inferior level. Why would you do that? That's what's so repulsive to God. And so open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 5, verse 8, so we can look at the second commandment briefly. Deuteronomy 5, verse 8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy you should know where it is by now, but if you don't, I just told you the order. So, Deuteronomy 5, verse 8. And just follow along with me as I read. It says, You shall not make for yourself an idol, any likeness that is in heaven above or that is on earth below or that is in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not worship them, nor shall you serve them, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, even up to the third and the fourth generations to those who hate me, but who keeps loving kindness for thousands to those who love me, to those who keep my commandments. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. It sounds simple enough. It sounds easy enough to understand, but it's not that simple. It's not that simple. You see, this could mean one of two different things. One this could mean you aren't allowed to turn the one true God 
into an idol. It could mean that. But it could also mean you aren't allowed to turn other gods, false gods, gods who don't exist, into idols. So which one is it? What's, what's the answer to this question? Well, like I said before, it's the first option. You aren't allowed to make an idol out of the one true God. Uh, this isn't so much talking about making idols out of other pagan gods who really don't exist. Uh, now, it's definitely wrong to make an idol out of gods that don't exist. That's wrong. But that's not what's so much being talked about here. This is saying, don't make an idol out of God. Don't turn him into an idol. And so God's concerned with how Israel treats him. How do they perceive him? Is he their ultimate God? Or is he just commonplace? Does he just get lumped in with everything else in creation? Does he get lost in the crowd of human existence? Is he just like one of us? That's the idea. And so we learned from the first commandment that God is highest. And that's kind of, that's the idea with the second commandment as well. It's protecting God's highest spot, okay? It's kind of like Apple, uh, the tech company, not the fruit. Um, You know, with Apple, they're they're kind of the the company to beat, you know, in the tech world right now. And, uh, you know, how would you go about taking down Apple? How would you... Uh, you know, make sure that they're no longer the top dog in the, in the tech world? Well, you could do one of two things. You could either upgrade other companies and make them just as good as Apple, or you could go directly after Apple and, like, take them down directly. Well, the first commandment says we're going to take other companies and upgrade them to God's level. Well, the second commandment says, no, we're going to go after God directly and we're going to bring him down. Does that make sense? That's kind of the idea of what's going on here. And so that's the nature of the second commandment. Are you going to treat God as just another part of creation, or are you going to treat him as the creator of the universe? Is he separate? Is he distinct from everything else? Uh, Is he worthy of the highest position and the greatest honor? And that's what I want to address this morning. Uh, It's one thing to, um, to select other things in your life to be more important than God, it's a whole other animal to go after God directly and to, to try to, to demote him and to kick him off his throne. That's the nature of the second commandment. Okay? So there's a really good example of this in the Bible where this actually happens. But it's probably not one story that you're familiar with. But I want to show you this story. Uh, So flip in your Bibles over to the book of Judges, okay? The book of Judges. And we're going to look at chapters 17 through 18, okay? Uh, Rather than me telling you all the things that you need to know about the second commandment, I I want to uh, make this a little bit more interesting for you this morning. I actually want to give you a story that illustrates the second commandment, okay? And this story was a real moment in real history uh, where Israel broke the second commandment. And the results were catastrophic, okay? This is a really funny story in one sense and a crazy story all at the same time and, and sad at, at the same time as well. So, um, so look at uh, Judges chapter 17, verse 1. 
I'm going to read this from the ESV. So if you have an ESV, it's going to sound exactly like. Um, if you have something else, just try your best to follow along. So verse 1, Judges 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Okay, stop there. There's a guy. Let me erase this. There's just this guy whose name is Micah. Okay? And Micah's sad. Okay? And we're going to see why in just a second here. Verse 2. Uh, verse 2 says, And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke, to, spoke it to my ears, uh, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. So what's going on here? Well, Micah has a mom... Uh, we don't know her name. We'll just call her mom. Okay, she has no arms. There we go. Uh, and she's actually happy because Micah says, uh, Mom, I stole money from you. Okay, I stole 1,100 pieces of silver. Okay, and that's a lot of money back in those days. And she's like, she, originally she had actually pronounced a curse on whoever stole it. She's like, whoever stole this, I hope he dies. And it's like, oh boy, that's, this person's in trouble. Well, the mom, as soon as she hears it, she's like, blessed be the Lord and stuff like that. And she actually blesses her son instead of cursing him. It's kind of crazy. And I don't know why she did that. But Micah repents and she forgives. So, so far, nothing bad has really happened at all. There's just, you know, it's okay. Well, Things get a little strange here, okay? Look at verse 3. And so he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So his mom's like, I'm going to dedicate this money to God. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to turn that money into some kind of you know, I don't know, idol. Okay? I don't know. That's my idol right there. So, okay? She's like, I'm going to turn it into an idol. And it's like, what are you doing? You know, like the assumption here is that she's actually making this idol to be God. That this is, this is the one true God of Israel, and I'm going to turn, it's actually two idols, but I'm going to turn these two idols into God. They represent the one true God. Because she says, I'm dedicating him to the Lord. And so she makes this idol and she breaks the second commandment. Now, let's continue in verse 4. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and, his, and the household gods, and, and he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, let's pause there for a moment because that last verse is very important. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. There was no ruler. Think about like having no government in your land at all. 
You can do whatever you want. It's anarchy, yeah. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. That's just another way of saying everyone does whatever he wants, okay? They just, they do whatever they want. So the idea here is, how did this happen? Like, how, how did Israel get to this point where there's no ruler, there's no authority? And the idea here is, really, this idol kind of says it all. Israel had gotten to a point where they had slowly let their view of God dwindle over time. They had lost respect for God. He's no longer their authority. They don't care about authority. They don't care about it at all. And so they think, well, God's just kind of whatever, and I can kind of do whatever I want, and I can make him into whatever I want and, and just kind of fulfill whatever all my desires. That's kind of what's going on at this time. Now, I want you to watch what happens from this point forward because what's going to take place next is going to be very telling about what the, ten, what the second commandment is all about, okay? So look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he, had, where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. So we get a new dude in the story, and the mom goes away. We get this guy, and we don't know his name, but he's just, he's just kind of weird because he just kind of wanders around. He's like a homeless bum, okay? And he's a Levite. He's a Levite. I'll just call him Levi for now, okay? And Levi, Levi, before you think like, oh, poor Levi, he was homeless, uh, Levites were not supposed to be homeless. They were not supposed to wander around and just kind of like do whatever. They were supposed to like stay in one place, okay? So this guy's already in sin. Like he's not like a good guy. He's just kind of just, just wandering around like, oh, I'm, I'm stupid and stuff. Like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm supposed to be a Levite and I'm not. So, but that's kind of what he's doing, okay? He, he finds Micah and he's like, and Micah's like, hey, you can stay with me and you can be my priest. And that's what we find in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levi from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be, be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year. Where do you think that you got that silver from? The idol thing that his mom gave him, right? So 200 was used for the idols, and then you know, 900 is used to you know, pay this guy off. So, uh, so he... Uh, uh, 10 pieces of silver a year and a, a suit of clothes and you're living. And the Levite went in and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite and the young man became his priest and he was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. So Levite, Levi becomes this priest, okay? P for priest. Um, so he becomes this priest for Micah in his house. And notice what, notice what it says here. Verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Micah's using God to his advantage. Micah's saying, I'm going to take all this money and I'm going to buy my own priest, which you're not supposed to do, and I'm going to do that so God will be happy with me and he'll make me prosper. Well, what's, what's, what's uh, Micah doing? He's, he's making God into this idol to manipulate him for his own ends. 
You see how he's doing that? He's, he's manipulating God. And so Micah is no longer sad. I mean, he's, he's really happy now, but really he's not doing, he's really doing something really bad, okay? And so that, that's the idea here. Micah just sees God as someone to manipulate. Uh, God's just someone who can make his life better. Uh, he's like a magical genie. You know, you rub the lamp and out pops the genie. What do you do with the genie? You ask for, you know, he gives you three wishes and you get to, you know. But what's the idea of a genie? Who's in charge? Are you in charge of the genie or is the genie in charge of you? You're in charge of the genie. Now, the genie is more powerful than you, true. But you're in charge of the genie. And that's how Micah's treating God. He's treating God like a genie. I want to manipulate him, use him so I can get what I want. I can prosper in life. That's not the nature of God. God's not a genie that you can just control. That's what we call blasphemy. That's blasphemy in a, in a sense. And so now the story continues in chapter 18 here, okay, because this gets actually really funny. Uh, look, look at uh, chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. So again, just emphasizing the fact that there's, there's no one, uh, there's no authority here. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Now, we introduce a new character. We have the tribe of Dan. Okay? And I'll, I'll write five guys down because we're going to encounter five guys in just a second. Okay? It's like the, the restaurant, five guys. Um, so this is the tribe of Dan. And they're looking for a new home. They're looking for a new home, okay? And there's like thousands and thousands of people in this, okay? It's not just five, okay? But they're looking for a new home, okay? And so look at verse 2. It says, So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole tribe, of the, from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and Eshtol, to spy out the land and explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. So Micah's like turning into some kind of like hotel or something, okay? I don't know why, but everyone likes to lodge there, all right? They like to stay there for the night. So these five scouts are going to try to find a new home. They stop by Micah's house for a visit. And when they were by Micah's house, verse 3, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I've become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Now, what's going on here? These five scouts recognized Levi and were all like, what are you doing like way out here? Like you're not supposed to be like way out here. You're supposed to be in Bethlehem in, 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 in Judah. And you're in Ephraim now. And he's like, well, I was just like wandering around like a homeless bum. And this dude, Micah, was like, hey, like, come be my priest. I was like, sure, dude. And so these people of Dan are like, cool, that sounds fun. And they're like, hey, we have an idea. Can you check with God for us to see if like we're going to be successful in finding a new home? Could you like ask God like, hey, like, is it going to be okay? Like, is it going to go well with us? And so Levi's like, yeah, sure, whatever, bros, I'll do that. And so 
Supposedly, he asks God, although probably not because it, the text doesn't actually tell us that he did, and it doesn't tell us that God like actually told him anything. And so, but he supposedly asked God, and, and uh, he comes back to them. And he's like, "Hey, all clear, bros. You can go find your new home and stuff." And so, you know, God's gonna find you one. And they're like, "Okay." And so they kind of walk off. And so that's kind of what happens here. All right. So it's kind of kind of really bizarre. So notice this though. Not only has Micah manipulated God for his own agenda, the scouts from Dan also manipulate God for their own agenda. They're using God like a genie. Ask God for us. Find out if our way is going to actually prosper, if we're going to find a new home. So you see a pattern here, what's going on? Everyone's using God for their own advantage. Now, verse 7, chapter 18, verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth and and how they were far from the Sidonians and had uh, no dealings with anyone. So there's this city. Okay. I don't know. There's this city that's out in the middle of nowhere called Laish. And it's just really quiet. It's wealthy. And and so it's it's interesting. And, oh, here's the thing. It's got lots of bling bling, okay? Lots of bling bling, all right? So, so what happens? Verse 8. And when they came to the brothers at Zorah and Eshtol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise and let us go against them, for we have seen the land. And behold, it's very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow uh, to go, to enter in and to possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. And so in other words, the people of Dan, if I could show you what their faces look like, they were like, oh yeah, like we want this place, okay? So they're all like, let's, let's take this place out and, and, uh, and plunder it, and this will be our new home. So so verse 11 says, So 600 men of the tra- uh, tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtol. And they went up and encamped at Kiryat Yerim in Judah. Uh, on this account, that place is called Mahane Dan. Behold, it is west of Kiryat Yerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish, said to their brothers, do you know that in these houses there's an ephod, there's household gods, there's a carved image and metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod and the household gods and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 armed uh, men with weapons of war. So that was a lot there, but what's going on? This is actually really funny because what happens is uh, Dan sends this 600-person army to go attack this city of Laish. And on the way, they stop by once again our friend Micah's house, right? And they all like, hey, 
the, the five scouts go with them. And they're like, hey, we remember this guy has a very expensive idol or two expensive idols. They've got other household gods and an ephod. All this is worth a ton of money. They're like, let's stop by and plunder that place as well. This could be a two-for-one score. And so, so they drop by Micah's house, and they start taking all this stuff. And, you know, like, what's, what's Micah going to do against a 600-person army? Like, you know, the, there's, there's nothing he can do. So, verse 18 and when these men went to Micah's house and they took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest, a.k.a. Levi, said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the, house, or to be the priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So... Dan, the Dan army says, Levi, let me lay it out for you straight here, okay? Would you rather be stuck as a priest with this bum and, uh, who's about to be broke, we're about to plunder all of his house, uh, and we're about to ransack everything, or would you rather be a priest over the entire tribe that's about ready to score a big job? Oh, and yeah, we're going to take all the stuff that Micah has anyways, you know? all the household gods and all that. Like, it, so Levi's like, well, this is a no-brainer. So he's like, bye, Micah, sayonara. And he like picks up the idols himself and like goes off with the tribe of Dan, okay? And so uh, Levi turns into a traitor here in a sense. And he's, he kind of, he's kind of acts like a priestly mercenary. Like he goes with the highest bidder, like as a priest, which is really weird. Um, which is totally the opposite of what a priest should be doing, but, but that's besides the point for now. But again, I want you to notice the point here. Notice how everyone's treating God. Micah manipulates God by making idols that will bless him. Uh, the tribe of Dan manipulates God by treating God like a genie on their quest for a new home. And Levi himself manipulates God by siding with the highest bidder. Everyone's manipulating God. No one's taking him seriously. And that's what it means to turn God into an idol. So the Dan army, as the, the rest of the chapter unfolds here, goes on with Levi to pillage the poor unsuspecting city of Laish. And they plunder the place. They kill everyone. They burn it to the ground, all supposedly under the blessing of God. You see how this works? Don't forget that this people ask, these people ask Levi to ask God if their trip would be successful or not. And so what they've done is they're using God. They're using God to, to fulfill their selfish desires, to go, really in a sense, they're putting words in God's mouth so that they can justify their selfish, murderous actions. That's crazy. But that's the nature of this time. And that's really how far it can go when you begin to turn God into an idol. If he no longer, I don't have my you know, example up here, but if he no longer is your highest authority, if you have demoted him to some part of creation, something you can control, then what have you just done? You've just, in a sense, given yourself license to do whatever you want. 
And that's what we see in this culture at this time. So, crazy story, huh? This is a very funny, weird, and yet sad story that really illustrates what it looks like to break the second commandment. And making God into idols isn't just wrong because God doesn't want you to carve stuff. I hope you see that it's more than that now. Making God into idols happens because there's a heart problem. There's a heart problem. When you turn God into an idol, you're not ju- or, sorry, you're out to use God to fulfill your own selfish desires. That's the second commandment. That's what it's all about. So, let me give you a couple of implications from this, okay? Let's talk a little bit uh, more about what this means. And, and there are really three particular thoughts that I want to point out to you, okay? And you can fill these in on the back of your note-taking sheet. Uh, I left the first half for, like, the first half of the sermon, and then the back half is, is for this part, okay? What is the second commandment all about here? What's it all about? Well, I want you to see three things. One, the second commandment is all about manipulating God. We, we've talked a lot about this already, but I want to expand on it, okay? The second commandment is all about manipulating God. And I've used that word a lot, but in case you don't know what the word manipulate means, uh, manipulate just simply means to control. just means to control, okay? That's how you can think about it. It means to micromanage, to, 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 to kind of put something into your own little box and be able, to, be able to control it, okay? And I like to think of it kind of like a puppet, you know? You know, like Pinocchio, you know? But Pinocchio, you know, how, how does Pinocchio work, right? He, you use, like, you know, sticks that are tied to, or that the strings are tied to, and it's attached to the puppet, and you move him, and you can manipulate him and control him, right? That's the way it works. Well, a person who makes God into an idol is trying to control God like a puppet. That's what he's doing. He sees that God has a lot of power in the ability to do great things, but instead of submitting to God and all his power and authority, he tries to manipulate God and control God to achieve his own ends. Okay? So you're trying to put God into a box. You're trying to get your arms wrapped around God, and you're trying to control him. That's not honoring to God. That doesn't glorify him. That doesn't exalt him. That demeans him. That defames him. And that demotes him to something less than he really is. Uh, God has a lot of power. There's no doubt about that. And no one's denying that when they make an idol out of God. They know that. They realize that. But what are they doing? They're trying to, in a sense, control God's power and channel it to make something happen that they want to have happen. And so God does have a lot of power, but he's not some kind of magical genie like from Aladdin or something that you can manipulate. God sets his own agenda. Because he's the highest authority in the universe, he doesn't just have all the power. He has all the wisdom and knowledge, and he makes his own decisions. You don't make decisions for him. Now, I think this really speaks directly to you and I today. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, how? Like, we don't have a problem with carving physical idols and stuff like that. Uh, But here's the thing. We do have a problem with manipulating God. We manipulate God all the time. And um, 
that too really in and of itself is a fracture of the second commandment. Now let me give you a goofy example and then I'll give you a serious example, okay, of how we do this. Uh, Christian bands are really popular today. Um, I love Christian, some, a lot of Christian bands. Um, I used to be like into, like back in the day, my bands were like, let's see, Five Iron Frenzy. If you're like, who are these bands? Look them up, okay? Um, Five Iron Frenzy, Supertones, all ska bands. Uh, but I like, I like enjoyed other ones like, um, well, let's see, I'm blanking on some of the names now, which is really bad. Those were two that I really focused on. But anyways, but you guys, have, you guys like Christian bands, right? I know you do because I've listened to some of your music. So like while well, you got me trapped in a car down a regen, right, Evan? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, uh, Christian rap is actually very popular today, which is what Evan listens to all the time. Um, and, uh, but, but Christian music has the potential to be really good in honoring to Christ. And, but there's some Christian music that's deceptively bad. And here's the thing. Some Christian songs are actually hard to identify as Christian. I don't know if you realize this, but it's true. Uh, because here's the thing. They, they, they sound exactly like a secular song. Exactly like it. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about their style here. I'm talking about what they say, their lyrics, their words. Uh, I like to call these songs like, like Jesus is my boyfriend kind of songs, okay? Um, they, they, they essentially take the same kinds of words you would use to talk to your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you say them to Jesus. And I remember one song in particular years ago um, that used to irk me. Like, I was just like, this is, like, I don't know what to think about this. Some of the lyrics kind of went like this, okay? You are my oxygen. I breathe you in, I breathe you out. And it was like, who are you talking about? The entire song didn't mention God or Jesus or anything, and yet it was supposed to be a Christian song. And it was like, who are we talking about here? Are we talking about God? Or are we talking about your boyfriend? Like, I don't know like, who you're talking about right now. But that was, that was the song. And, but what have you done uh, when, that, when, uh, when you actually create a song like that and you can't tell the difference between whether it's God or your boyfriend? You've just treated God like everything else. You've, t- you've taken the creator of the universe and you've stuffed him into creation. And you've treated him just like anything else. And it's just like, you know, how is, how is God different now? How is he distinct from everything else? How is he special? How is he different? He's just like one of us. And you can't tell the difference. Uh, the language we're using is supposedly worshiping him. But really, it's just common everyday language you find in secular music. And you can't tell the difference. It's really, it's Christian bands or, or, or music artists who are wanting to become more like the secular culture. And, and they're using God as a way to do that. And again, that's where, that's where we call manipulation. Now, that's just a silly example. But let me get real here for a moment, okay? Because I've listened to some of your guys' Christian music, and it's fine. Most of your Christian music, I think, is really good. Um, a lot of, especially music that talks about the gospel, that's great Christian music. And I think a lot of Christian rap has come a long way in that way. Uh, and, and other Christian bands as well. But, but here's, here's a real serious example, okay? When you're at church, when you're at church, 
and Pastor Steve is praying, okay? And your mind wanders, your mind wanders. You are in violation of the principle of the seventh commandment. And you're like, really? Is that true? Yeah, it's true. When you let your mind wander, you're suggesting to God that you think what's going on is just ordinary, it's boring, it's commonplace, it's just, you know, it's just like kind of like everything else in life. It's like school. You do the same thing in school. You let your mind wander when your teacher's talking, you know. He's talking about, you know, I don't know, like protons and neutrons and all kinds of weird stuff in science class that you don't care about. And so you let your mind wander. Okay. In church, you do the exact same thing. When you pray, when someone's praying, you just let your mind wander. What have you just done? You've lumped school and church together as one, and you've said, no, they're just the same thing. They're not really worthy of my attention and because it's just kind of common every day, whatever. I don't really care. What is that? That is turning God into an idol, something you can manipulate for your own ends. You're basically saying that, that God is not worthy of my time. And I'm going to use this, this time that I call church and worship to actually feed my own desires and just let my mind wander about whatever I want to let it think about. Here's another example. When you choose to text your friends during church or to play games on your phone, you've just broken the principle of the second commandment. You're suggesting that, that God is not worth your time. His, worshiping him in this hour is not something that you are all about. You know, it, it's, it's, it's the same thing as, as if, you know, you would, uh, you know, text during school or decide to play video games instead of doing homework. And you procrastinate instead. It's the same thing. You're lumping church with every other boring part of life. Church is no longer special. Church is no longer unique. Church is no longer the highlight of your week. Church is just something else. See, how you've reduced God to a level of creation instead of recognizing that God is the ultimate creator. That's manipulation. You're manipulating a moment of time reserved for God's glory to serve your own personal interests. And so you can see this is very real. This is very real. And this is very convicting because it takes every time you think about God, every time you are are engaging in worship toward God, every time you pray to God, every time you read your Bible, all these different moments that you're you're, you're having a moment with God, and it really says this is a moment where you have a decision to make. Am I going to treat God as highest, or am I going to turn him into something that is lower, something that is just what, something, make it a moment that is really all about me? And so the second commandment is all about manipulating God. But number two, the second commandment is all about elevating yourself. It's all about elevating yourself. We need to ask ourselves an important question here. Why would anyone want to manipulate God? Why would anyone want to manipulate God? And I've, we've, we've hinted at this here, but I, wanna, I want to get very specific about it. Why would anyone want to bring God down to our level and wish to control him? Because manipulating God means you get to be God for a day. 
You get to be God. Now that there's a vacancy on God's throne because you've dragged him off the throne, now the spot's open. And now you get to make a run for the throne. That's the idea of the second commandment. It's not just manipulating God for your own ends. It's, I want to be God. I want to be God in this moment. It's all about me. It's all about my desires. And so I'm going to use God to make those desires a reality. You want to, you, in a sense, here's the idea. You want control. You want authority. You want, you want the power. And here's the crazy thing. You're willing to use God, who used to be on the throne, to get yourself up to the throne. It's kind of weird. You've dragged God off his throne only to turn him into a stepping stool to hoist yourself up onto the throne. That's crooked. That's devious. And that's why the second commandment is so heinous and why God is so repulsed at it. And that's why Deuteronomy 5.8 says this, you shall not make for yourself an idol, anything that is in heaven above, earth below, or, or, on, or in the sea beneath the earth. You shall not worship them, you shall not serve them. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God, visiting the fathers of the children, uh, upon the children to the third and the fourth generations. God says, I'm a jealous God. You are my people. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to rip our relationship apart so that you can use me to assert your authority over me. Why would you do that? I want to actually be in a relationship with you. I care about you, but you say, I don't care about you, God. This is treacherous. This is treason. Idolatry looks good on the surface. Um, You know, if you go around the world and you look at all the different religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, Islam, yeah, maybe not Islam so much because they don't have idols, but, but yeah, you know, but all the ones that have like idols and stuff like that. Having golden idols and things like that looks good. It looks religious. It looks like you're worshiping some kind of a God, but here's the truth about idolatry. You're really worshiping yourself. You're really worshiping yourself. And that doesn't just go for those who make idols, physical idols. That goes for everybody. Because like we've talked about, idolatry is not just something external. It comes in the heart. Remember Ezekiel 14.3? Son of man, these people are erecting idols in their hearts. In their hearts. That's idolatry. It's worship of self. You've removed God from his place of worship and you've set up shop in his place. You've booted God from his throne and vaulted yourself into his vacant role. Again, we don't bow down to, down to physical idols at all, but I still see this happening all the time to teenagers your age. I see it happening all the time. And here's the biggest way I see it taking place in, in a way that's probably the most dangerous way in my mind. It's so popular, so popular for teenagers who grow up in Christian homes, who grow up in good churches, Christian churches, to graduate from high school, to go to college somewhere, move out from their parents' place, or maybe just get a job somewhere. And then what they do is they go and they party. And they live life and do whatever they want to do. I see it happen all the time. 
So many students from my, even, even my ministry down at Grace Community Church, I've seen student after student after student profess Christ in high school and go off and live life like they're not a Christian. And here's the greatest tragedy about all of that, okay? Here's the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy is not that they went off and committed all kinds of sin. That's not the greatest tragedy. The saddest part of this is that they still profess to be a Christian. That's the saddest part. They say, I love you, Jesus. I love you, God. I'm a Christian. But their lives are caked with sin. That's crazy. That's rebellion against the second commandment. You're using God to do whatever you want in life. These kind of people say, basically, we have freedom in Christ. Jesus has set me free, and I can do whatever I want. That's horrible. That's not what Jesus has done. You're using, you're basically misusing God and twisting his words to serve your own desires. You basically made God into someone who doesn't have a moral standard. You're, you're taking parts of the Bible and you're saying, I really don't believe those parts are true. You know, the parts about, you know, don't commit sexual immorality, don't, don't uh, covet, don't be greedy, don't, you know, be drunk and stuff like that. I'm going to take those, I'm just going to kind of throw those off and throw those aside. And I'm just going to take the parts that say, you know, Jesus makes me feel good or he loves me and stuff like that. I'm just going to camp out there. What have you done? You've turned God into a different God. You are using God for your own ends. That's idolatry. That's breaking the second commandment. To profess faith in God and, and not to live it, it it's, it's, it's to make God into an idol, to make him into something that he's not. And so we do this all the time. We rationalize our sinful behavior so that we can continue sinning and living uh, and, and look good on the outside. The second commandment's all about elevating yourself. And finally, the second commandment, if we could sum this up in one phrase, I would say this. The second commandment is all about a careless attitude toward God. It's a careless attitude toward God. You have a cavalier attitude. I like that word, cavalier. You're just independent. You just, I don't care. I'm just going to do whatever I want. That is the nature of the second commandment. And so really, bottom line, what is the second commandment all about? It's saying, I really don't care about who God is. I really don't respect him for, for who he says he is. And I'm willing to take God and distort who he is to use him for my own benefit. That's the nature of the second commandment. Now, I first started out this morning by reading for you Psalm 50, which expounded on the first commandment. It tells us basically that God is great. In a sense, there's no one like him, and he's almighty, but... I only just read for you the first 15 verses of that, that chapter, actually. And what I want to do right now is I want to finish the chapter for you. Okay, this is, this is the final couple of verses of this chapter. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? 
for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. And if you keep company with adulterers, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. And catch this. You thought that I was like, uh, that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver you. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. All sin, to one degree or another, is rebellion against the second commandment because it makes God out to be someone he's not. Psalm 50 verse 21 there said, You thought that I was one like yourself. That is really bottom line, the definition of sin. It's trying to assert yourself into the role of God and tear God down from that spot. But God's not like us. God's not like us. God's different. And we have the audacity to put him in our little boxes and try to stuff him into our own worlds, to degrade him and to demean him for our own selfish ends. We deserve eternal damnation for that. But there's a fantastic irony to all of this. God did become like us. God did step down from his throne. God did humble himself like a man. And Jesus is that man. That's the crazy thing about it. Jesus is that man who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, uh, being born in the, in the likeness of men. And he, being found in, in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, Lord Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Let me read verse 10 for you again. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Does that sound familiar? Those are the, almost the exact words of the second commandment. That you shall not make for yourself an idol any likeness that is in heaven above, on earth below, or in the sea beneath the earth. What does this verse say? In heaven, on earth, or under the earth. What's being talked about here? This is talking about this. There is only one idol that God has ever allowed us to worship. And that idol is Jesus. The only time that God actually demoted himself in the form of an idol to be like us. An idol is just an image of a God. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible 
God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the perfect representation of God. In this, Jesus became like us so that he could die for us and pay for our sins. And when he rose from the dead, he gives us victory over the death that we deserve for breaking the second commandment. That's the crazy, fantastic, wonderful irony and twist to all of this. We want to demote God so that we can be God. But God demoted himself so that Jesus himself could be the ultimate, wonderful, and beautiful authority and so that we could be rescued from our sins. That's crazy. But that is the victory that we celebrate as Christians. That's an idol worth worshiping. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that there was a moment in history when you actually stepped down from your throne. In a sense, you became an idol. You became an image of yourself. You became a man, flesh and blood, that, that was the perfect representation of who God is. And Father, that image came to die on the cross so that we would no longer suffer the consequences of our sins and we would no longer be bound and enslaved to our sins. What a glorious reality. Father, because of that, we want to highly exalt Jesus. Instead of asserting our authority and putting ourselves in God's place, we want to put Jesus where he rightfully belongs, in the place of the highest position, giving him full glory and honor and, and, and celebrating his victory. Father, if there's someone in this room who does not worship you as you should be worshipped, Father, please help them to see the error of their ways. Help them to see that they're putting themselves in a place where they shouldn't be. And help frustrate them, Father. Irritate them. Drive them mad until they repent of their sins. But for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, Father, help us to put to death this sin that constantly wants to manipulate you and, and, and try to be God in your place. Lord, may we repent and humble ourselves as James chapter 4 says. May we submit to you, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. May we draw near to you, and you will draw near to us. May we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. May we weep and mourn and, 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 and be humble before you. And I pray, Father, that you would impact our hearts with these things for the sake of Christ, for your glory, and for your exaltation. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.